We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Thank you so much for the reading of Scripture. That was um, that's a, that's a rich uh, those are rich texts, and I so enjoyed hearing them. And they will all converge in one way or another on what we are are dealing with tonight. If you don't mind, I'm going to read a bit of the text. That I'm going to try to work through a bit with you tonight, and that's in the first chapter of Corinthians. What you just heard was the last chapter of Corinthians, First Corinthians 15, which is which is really important. Um, this gets really to, to part of the heart of the issue, doesn't it? Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the early church as if it was a golden age. You know, if we could just get back to how it was way back then, you know, then we'd be at the purity of of the original church. Uh, this was a theory espoused by German theologians even in in the last century. They thought that the early church was the pure age of the gospel, and then it got all messed up uh, once you got into the Greek uh, period of of the creedal affirmations of our orthodoxy. And, and that's not really all that true. I mean, all you have to do is read Corinthians, and you realize, oh my. Uh, this uh, golden, pristine age had some real issues like, well, immorality, uh, people were schismatic, uh, people were actually denying the resurrection of the dead, uh, and, and this gets to the, the text we just heard before us. So there's a lot of issues going on in Corinth. One of the major ones that Paul deals with right off the bat is the scandal of the cross. What does it mean to be a Christian? Christians are people who identify themselves with Jesus Christ. And in identifying themselves with Jesus Christ, they also identify themselves with the cross. And that really wasn't all that good news in the Greco-Roman world, and frankly, sometimes even in our world as well. So let's see how Paul addresses this problem. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 18 For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He's poking fun here, by the way. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks, they like wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of our wisdom. Or he is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So here my uh, wife and I were 
uh, hunkered down in our uh, little house in St. Andrews, Scotland. Um, anyone been there before? It's known for golf. I went there for other reasons. But uh, there, there we were in, in Scotland. And, and this, this was in our pre-kids days um, when we did what we thought was really exciting on a lazy Saturday afternoon. Uh, we sat on our couches, my wife and I, and, 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 and we read. Um, and we, we were reading, and we were sitting there, and it was gray outside, as you might expect, and I think it might have, well, I don't know if it was gray, I can't quite remember, but it was a typical Scottish day, and then we hear a knock on the door, and uh, begrudgingly, I put the book down, I think my wife was somewhere in Jane Austen, and I, we go and we open the door, and you just have to understand where St. Andrew, Scotland is, it's in Booneyville, Scotland, we were talking like redneck Scotland, where um, we, when my wife and I arrived there, we got off the train at the closest train station, dropped our little footlockers that we had. The train pulls away, and there's nothing but fields around you. And then you get a taxi into this far off. I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, we hear this knock on our door. We open the door, and guess who's standing there? Two guys, white shirts. Black ties, bicycles leaned against our fence, and they're from America. Elder John and Elder, I don't know, Tim, you know, 19-year-old elder, whoever they were. And so um, they said, do you mind if we have a few moments of your time? And and in all honesty, you know, I I, I didn't really want to give them any time. Um, But we said, come on in, guys. And they wanted to give their spiel. And and they were actually both very nice young men. Um, They were students at Brigham Young University. Uh, They both played on the basketball team at Brigham, very tall, handsome guys. And really, you could tell they were doing their two-year stint so that they could get back to play basketball at BYU. I mean, that was quite apparent from the get-go. But we invited them in. They started to go through their spiel. But I stopped them. I said, listen, before you go too far, you need to know something. My wife and I um, were Christians. And there, of course, what did they say? Well, we are too, right? That's the kind of, a, yeah, okay, okay. I just want you to know, we're, we're, we're those crazy kind of Christians. Right? We're not the kind that go just on Easter and Sunday. We're not sort of just cultural Christians. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of weird about it, actually. So I'm, I'm even here studying because I take it so seriously. So I just want to warn you about that so you know who, who, who we are. So you, I'm going to let you talk, and then maybe if you don't mind, maybe we'll talk as well. And, and they started to go through their thing. And, and, and I don't think I'd ever really heard it from their lips before like this, but it's strange. Um, they began to talk about... Um, Languages that are on brass plates, and I'm not going to get all these details right, so don't, I'm not a Mormon expert, but the languages on brass plates that are, are awaiting an angelic figure who will then come and interpret these brass plates to us so that we'll know about you know, the celestial order of things, and, and they're waiting that, and then there's this weird belief that if you really preserve to the end, everyone will be over their own planets, and, 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 and you start to go, first of all, that couldn't have happened anywhere other than America. I mean, no, no, no other country is going to think about the goal being we get to rule our own planet. That's, I, mean, that's, I mean, that's right out of a... And, and, and it just was, it was strange. And they, they left, we chatted, and I think my wife and I were both slightly depressed. You know, you got to remember, this is their world. This is mom and dad, grandma and grandpa. And that's all they've known. But so for them, that wasn't really all that strange. And for us, it was, it was just bizarro world. And then they, be, they, they left, and, and my wife and I began to walk into town. And, and I, I looked at Naomi, and I said, okay, um, let's pretend. 
we can't really do this really well, but let's just pretend that you and I had never heard the gospel before. No, I mean, because it's part of our cultural world as well. My wife grew up in a Christian home. We're very thankful for that. I grew up in a Christian home. Some of you may have not had that experience. But for us, Christian talk was normal talk in our house. So just imagine that someone comes to you and they knock on your door and they say, we'd like to tell you this story. It goes something like this. Uh, so God creates God out there. And then he, he chooses, he elects this obscure Middle Eastern nation, Israel. Then he promises a coming one who, surprises of surprises, isn't just a coming redeeming figure. He's not just a, a political figure. He's actually, now, now brace yourself for this one, he's actually God. Well, who's the God of Israel? Well, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, God is one. We only believe in one God, but we identify him via three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one God, but we name him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. With me so far? Right. And uh, this person, Jesus, comes along, who is now, believe it or not, God in the flesh, and he leads a perfect life. He, he heals people. He, he stops the storms, and only God can do that. He forgives people of their sins. Only God can do that. And then you're not going to believe this. But they, um, they, they kill him. They what? Yeah, that's right. They kill him. But he, he rises from the dead after that. And he's alive right now. It's an incredible story. And then the person says to you, well, that's great. I'd like to might meet this Jesus. Well, this is where it gets a little bit tricky as well. He's, he's not quite here anymore. He's, he's, he left us. Um, to go to be with his father, and he gave us his spirit, and he's coming again, and um, and someday we're going to be raised to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's it's absurd. I mean, no wonder they laughed Paul out of Mars Hill when he began to talk about the resurrection of the dead. No wonder the church father Tertullian said, not quite this, but something to the effect of, I believe the gospel because it's so absurd. And we do various things, don't we, to try to counter the truth of this statement. We try and make the, the claims of Christianity sophisticated, or we try to remove the sting of its scandal by saying things like this. Wouldn't it be better to try Christianity and lose nothing than not to try Christianity and lose everything? Or some form of the Pascalian wager. Or we craft very impressive arguments that are meant to stifle the voices of ancient and modern detractors. You know these people. They're all over Barnes & Noble. Bertrand Russell, Richard Dawkins, just saw him on Colbert the other night. Christopher Hitchens. And I support many of the attempts that we make to silence the various detractors who are out there. Christianity is a reasonable faith. And in the marketplace of ideas, go at it if this is what God has called you to do. Or let me say this from a different vantage point. We do affirm that Jesus gives new meaning to life. That life with him is better than life without him. Uh, that the morality of the Bible is better uh, than uh, a morality from a competing system. That communities of love and self-giving are better than any socioeconomic uh, 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 philosophy out there that might challenge it. But, and this is a big B-U-T, but when any of these attempts at making Christianity respectable or reasonable or rational detract or diminish or demure from the stark and naked reality of the cross and the resurrection, then we are on very shaky ground. 
As a matter of fact, if such a thing were to happen, we're actually compromising the gospel that's been handed down to us from the prophets and the apostles. And this is where we meet Paul tonight. In this most robust of letters, his first to the Corinthian Christians. Human wisdom versus God's wisdom. And from this, Paul, in this chapter now, launches into one of his most famous and insightful reflections on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And you have to remember in this world of Corinth, in this Hellenistic Greco-Roman world, that they valued uh, crafty, rhetorical, philosophical arguments. This is the height of that era where persuasion and rhetoric and the ability to persuade with your words, that's what was valued more than anything else. That was human wisdom. And in the middle of this setting where human wisdom is valued via this particular lens, God has revealed His glory and the wisdom of the gospel in surprising ways. Paul uses the language here of the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for those who are, and notice the language here, being saved. This is into the world language from Paul. It's apocalyptic language. He even cites a verse from Isaiah that elicits this and highlights this uh, act of God's judgment and saving power that surprises and defies uh, human expectations. Here's the word from Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So it's in the middle of this that God has demonstrated His own wisdom and His own glory. And it's the word of the cross. The cross. We've domesticated the cross, haven't we? Just like, unfortunately, we sometimes domesticate Jesus. Jesus becomes our buddy or a fixture in our house that we turn to when the going gets rough. The cross is a gold or a silver amulet that we we put around our necks just in case there is something like good luck, right? Not all of us, I know, but sometimes. But we have to remember, this is the cross. It's a shameful image that struck horror into the hearts of all within the Roman Empire. Martin Hingle, a, a German New Testament scholar, wrote a book on the crucifixion, on crucifixion, and actually said that the term crucifixion wasn't even allowed to be used among members of higher-class Roman society. They weren't even allowed to say the word unless it was in some sort of euphemistic way. It was meant to shock. It was meant to quell rebellion. And this is why, in one of those ironies of ironies within the history of, of the church, that in the providence of God, Pilate puts at the head of Jesus' cross, here is Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, we know that Pilate was uttering truth beyond the purview of his knowledge. He was saying something true, but Pilate meant it to be a source of fear. It was a message. People who claim to be king other than Caesar, this is what happens to them. They end up on on crosses. Caesar is Lord. Jesus is, is not. It's the cross. With all the paradox and all the tension found there where, where God in, in human flesh suffers both the overwhelming burden of human sin and the abandonment of his own father. And it's right here where Paul finds the wisdom of God. And how do we hear about this wisdom of God? We hear about it through the preaching of the cross, through proclamation, through, dare I say it, what's going on right now. 
And look at verses 20 through 21. Your Bibles are open. You notice in these verses that Paul, or, or really God, doesn't play by the rules of the world's wisdom. Paul pokes a little fun here at his adversaries. Show me the wise man. Show me the person of letters. Show me the scholar of this age. Bring them in and let the wisdom of God confound and offend them. And notice something here that's really significant, I think. Paul never calls him to question the truth of his beliefs or says that he's going to meet his opponents on their playing field. He roots the truth of the wisdom of God displayed in the cross in the revelation of God. Why is it true, Paul? Why is the cross true? Not because the wise man, the person of letters, or the scholar is going to find every argument airtight or find within the contours of their own ability to reason every truth of the gospel persuasive. Paul assumes the truth of the gospel because God revealed it to him. The power of God demolishes its detractors because it is so. Or it's true because it's true. Well, who in the world is going to find that persuasive? I mean, you think about that. It's true because it's true? Come here, I mean, we need more than that. Well, Paul describes the people in verse 18 and verse 21 as those who are being saved. They're the ones who find this persuasive. People who have recognized that in Jesus they have life. The ones being saved. And it's not persuasive according to human standards of wisdom. It's not the playbook that we would have drawn up. The cross does have a a moronic element to it. There's an ugliness to the beauty of God revealed in the cross. And in verse 22, we see that the Jews, they want a sign. They want confirmation of what's been revealed to them in their scriptures. This is why the people at the cross, when they hear Jesus cry, that derelict cry, do you remember this? Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember what the people around at the foot of the cross thought Jesus was doing? They, were, they thought he was crying out for Elijah. I mean, this taps into, this is illustrative, I think, of their desire for a sign. I mean, they were waiting for a fireworks show. And they wanted it to happen. And they thought it was. But it didn't. Jesus is not a circus monkey performing tricks for the entertainment of the masses. And the Greeks, they want wisdom. Crafty arguments. Powerfully a structured rhetorical statements. They want all the glitz and the glamour that comes from a finely tuned mind without the shame and the embarrassment of a dead God on a cross. For the Jew, the cross is, a, is an affront to their sensibility. For the Greek, the cross, it's moronic. And guess what? None of this bothers God in the least. You see, he doesn't meet the Jew or the Greek on their own playing field. Uh, he doesn't blush because his plan of redemption doesn't satisfy all the skeptics out there. He's the Lord. You know, he's the creator. He's the redeemer of Israel. He draws up the rules and, and he speaks and worlds come into existence. And the word that he has spoken, 
His final definitive word, according to Hebrews 1.1, is in His Son. And it's the word of the cross. It's the gospel. And to the elect, Paul says, to those who have been given the gift of faith, to those whom God has lifted the veil of their foolish and their stubborn hearts to reveal the surprising nature of His saving ways, to believing ones composed of both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and He's the wisdom of God. Did you hear that? Paul's saying that. The power of God and the wisdom of God. It's a crucial move that Paul makes here. He's a, he's a master at uh, jujitsu sometimes. He's flipping people right now on the mat. You see, the very thing that Jews and Greeks are seeking, but that their empty religion or speculative philosophies cannot offer, is found in Christ. Jews want a sign. Christ really is the power of God. Greeks want wisdom. Christ is the wisdom of God. It's all in Christ. But it's a power and wisdom at odds with the prevailing notions of what power and wisdom are. Leonard Cohen wrote this song that become famous now, I guess, because of Shrek, uh, called Hallelujah. Um, it's, a, it's a powerful song, actually. There's a lot of a lot of theology, I think, in Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. There's a second verse in there, one that I think often gets skipped over. It says something like this. I saw your flag on the marble arch. Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. You see, this is where God displays His power and His wisdom in ways that confound our own sensibilities. You see, love's not a flag that's on a marble arch on the Arc de Triomphe in, in Paris. It's, it's not something that's just waving up there in, in, in displays of power and victory. Rather, His love and His power and His grace is displayed in a cold and a broken hallelujah. Cohen's on to something there. The logic's Pauline. You see, it's out of the coldness and the, and the brokenness and the darkness of the cross when all our hopes and, and our dreams that seem to come to a crashing end where the grandest of hallelujahs emerge. I mean, who would have imagined it that the cross brings in the new creation? This bloody, this, this vile scene is the place where God is making everything new. Where all that was wrong is being made right. Where sin and death, who seem to have the final word as His broken body is lowered from the cross, have in fact just spoken their last word. It's the power and the scandal of the cross. You see, it's foolishness to the eyes of the world. It's an affront to our sensibility. Immanuel Kant couldn't stand it. He thought it was an affront to what true rationality is, that somebody should take on the guilt of somebody else. It doesn't even work for him. Nietzsche as well. Just found it just an affront to their sensibility. And God says, I don't care. This is how I display my love and my wisdom. It's at the cross. Well, let me reflect with you. Do you mind? 
maybe three points of reflection for your church and for and for me. Okay, one. There's a there's a constant challenge and threat within the life of the church to grow bored of the gospel, right? The gospel, the fact that we're sinners and we need a savior who's going to redeem us from our sins and make everything new. Oh, by the way, we love the name of your church. Um, like the gospel becomes, or, or the word of the cross becomes the train ticket that gets us onto the train. But now that we're on the train, we're in the church, we're Christians, we put the ticket in our back pocket and try to find the candy and drink cart because that's where the fun is. It, it's, it, the gospel's not the ticket to get onto the train. Uh, the, the gospel is the train, it's the caboose, it's the engine, it's the candy cart, it's the whole thing. Do you grow bored of the gospel? You know, I fight it too as a teacher and a preacher. I have to fight within me the trendy or the interesting to garner the people's attention. And here's Paul once again saying, the wisdom of God is in the cross. Don't go looking for it elsewhere. Martin Luther, in his own irascible way, said that the gospel should be in every sermon. And the desire to find something better or more clever to fit into our sermons is sin. Or strong words. Every week you confess your faith here. We're about to do it in a few minutes. Every week here you come to the Eucharist table. We really affirm that. Where the gospel is demonstrated for you once again in bread and in wine. You hear it spoken. You see it before you. You ingest it into your bodies. Go to the gospel. Go to the cross where Jesus meets your sin and overcomes it with his grace. You need to go to it again and again and again. It's craziness to the world. But for those of us who are being saved, for you all, it's the power of God. Number two. Paul's theology of the cross is not just a reflection on how we get saved. It's, it's, it's not less than this, but it is really much more than this. You see, Paul's theology of the cross is meant to challenge us to think and view the world in radically different ways. You see, this is where the theology of the cross has a, has a transformative power to become the lens by which we view everything in the world, in the church, and in our lives. Really not the lens. That's not really the best way of looking at it actually becomes our retina, right? It becomes the, our eyes that allow us to see the world and our families and the church and the way in which Christ wants us to see it through the cross. Think of, think of the ways, I mean, it, really, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. We, we've had a, a, well, I'll share this in a second. But think of the ways that this view of the world would radically impact our lives and our values. Again, think about this. The wisdom of the world it values power, right? Displays of genius, craftiness, shrewdness. That's what the world values in its displays of power. But the cross shows us that love is demonstrated in self-denial, in humility, and esteeming others is more important than ourselves. I'm convicted even now. 
Think about how this might impact our marriages. I'm not going to get too per- Well, I'm going to get a little personal. You see, a theology of the cross would alter the way we view marriage and our spouses, for those of you who are married here. Jockeying for power in the relationship. Creating craftier, shrewd ways to get what we really want. I actually told my wife in our first year of marriage, I, I hate to tell you this, I actually told my wife to obey me. She looked at me like I was from Mars. You see, the cross changes all of that. It changes the way that I view my spouse. It alters this marriage culture of mutual need meeting. He meets my needs, she meets my needs. To a place of love and self-denial. Learning to grieve together. To suffer loss together. To hope together. To have our marriages shaped by the gospel. In the midst of all the sin that the two of us bring into this relationship. The ethicist Stanley Hauerwas said that everybody marries the wrong person. Why? Because we're all sinners. And our expectations brought into marriage are going to be woefully met. But the wisdom of God transforms all of this in the light of the cross. See, hallelujahs come from brokenness and coldness at the foot of the cross. How about the way we view our children? Oh, I wrestle with this. How does the wisdom of God affect the way that we rear our children? I mean, how does the theology of the cross affect our hopes and our dreams for them? What is it that the world values more than anything else when it comes to our kids? And I battle this. I mean, daily I battle this. Academic success, athletic success, and social success. That's worldly wisdom. And don't get me wrong. I want all of that for my boys. But the energy that we invest into these things, that in and of themselves may have little to do with the kingdom of God. Now, I know that all these things can be used profitably and for the kingdom of God. And don't mishear me. I'm going to get my boys into all of that. But I don't think it's too much of an overstatement, do I? To think about the way that a cross-shaped view of the world, of our children, and our values would influence the way that we, our hopes and our dreams for them. see, a theology of the cross marked by humility and self-denial would teach us patience and calmness in, in the rearing of our children. <laughs> Two attributes I displayed woefully just today. What about success? Whether in the church or in the world or the world of business. What about being single? What about growing old? Do you see how the cross and the display of the wisdom of God, the brokenness and coldness of the hallelujahs that we meet there, how that begins to shape and alter the ways in which we value things, the way in which God values things, over against the prevailing norms of the culture around us. And this is how we witness to the folly of the cross. I don't think we, I'll just say me, I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface on the way in which this worldview can radically impact our lives, our cultures, your, your church. Last thing. A theology of the cross teaches us radical reliance and dependence on Christ for everything. Can I read to you one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible? I read it already, but I'll, I'll do it again. 1 Corinthians 1.30 just memorize this verse. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, 
whom God made our wisdom. Now I'm going to fiddle with this a little bit. He made our wisdom. That is, here's God's wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. And he's our redemption. Our position as Christians in Christ is the wisdom of God. And here we have a descriptor of what that wisdom actually looks like. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Everything that has to do with our salvation, all of it from A to Z, is found in Him. He's our righteousness. That unique quality of Christ alone that He, by His own free grace, gives to us as an alien righteousness. And therefore, we are right in the sight of God. Even our holiness, our sanctification, is in Him. In other words, we're not going to stand before the judgment seat someday of God and say, Christ gave me my justification. He made me right in your sight. He got me saved. And here's all of my sanctification that I did for you. That's not going to happen either. All of it is in Christ. Even our good works are only happening because of Christ. Our holiness is never our own. It is Christ's that's given to us. And redemption are being released from the tyranny and dominion of sin and death. All of it. You see, the point Paul is making in all of this theology of the cross talk is found in verse 31. If you want to find something to boast about, Corinth, if you want to find something uh, uh, to put on your church marquee, then you need to boast in the Lord. And that's not going to necessarily make the wisdom of the world all that excited. You boast in Him because He's done everything for you. He has lived life for us and He's died our death for us. I was just riding in the car last night. We're coming back from South Carolina and my five-year-old son um, was back there and we were talking a little bit. He was asking questions about Jesus and, and the kingdom and, and we were kind of going back and forth on this and, and um, we're hoping it roots itself in his behavior, but in due course, in due course. Um, but so we're, we're uh, you know, he's talking about these things and, uh, and he says, Daddy, um, what about Jesus dying on the cross? And we talked about he died on the cross for our sins. And then he said, Daddy, I want Jesus to help me be obedient. And I was like, me too, son. You know, me too, right? But then I, I thought, I hope, you know, I'm, I'm making Pharisee out of my son. I know I am. And, and, I, and I told him last night, and I, I hope we can continue to tell him as we tell ourselves, but you know what, son? Your obedience will never be enough. The level of your faith, the depth of your faith will never be enough. Your repentance will never be enough. But Jesus' obedience, Jesus' faith, Jesus' prayer life for us, all of that has been given to us vicariously through Him as a free gift of grace. All of it. He lived life for us and He died death for us. All of it is in Him. Therefore, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's why uh, apparently... a. Roman Catholic priest came in to see in private the, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. 
And he asked, he was struggling with his faith. And he told Bart in a moment of honesty, I think I'm about to lose my faith. And Bart replied to him, when did you ever get the notion it was yours to lose? You see, we tend to look to ourselves for assurance and hope of our salvation. And you know what Paul and the gospel and, and the best of the history of the church teaches us again and again? Don't look to yourself for the assurance of your salvation. Look outside of yourself at the one who lived and died for you. Look to him. Take great hope and encouragement from Paul this evening. Your salvation is not something for you to manage. You live in radical reliance and dependence on Christ for everything. So when you're tempted to look to yourself for your salvation, or even your Christian living, run to the cross. It's a crazy message, isn't it? One that detractors and scoffers will laugh at until the final day. But for you and for me, for those of us who are being saved, the cross of Christ, it's everything.